Well, friends, when was the last time that you felt like you had bit off more than you could chew? When you had taken on more than you can handle? Maybe it was uh, an assignment at work or a project around the home or having children in general or kids. Maybe there's some subject in school that you feel like, man, this is too much. I just can't get my mind around it. When was the last time that you had bitten off more than you could chew? Well, do you realize that Jesus never bites off more than he can chew? That Jesus has never bitten off more than he can chew. When it comes to saving individuals like us, sinners who call upon his name for redemption, and in calling together imperfect people to be local churches that display his glory, Jesus has not bitten off more than he can chew in, in, in redeeming an entire people for himself from all times and in all places where the gospel has been preached. In some ways, that's kind of the whole point of the book of Acts. It really is. It's, it's, in some ways, it's kind of the whole point of this book that we've really been looking at since, since April to show how Jesus always accomplishes the thing that he sets out to do, never taking on too great of a mission. And in some ways, in today's sermon, I, I want to show us that. As we look at the last chapter in the book of Acts, though in some ways this sermon is more of an introduction and a conclusion with some little points in the middle, you will see. You remember how the book of Acts started? If you have a Bible, maybe you can get there quickly. Acts 1, 1 through 3. Luke, who was a doctor who wrote the gospel that we know as Luke, also wrote this second volume to the same man, a man named Theophilus. And there he says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. That's how the book began. Many months ago we began to look at it and we've seen really various things happen throughout the book. And let me just run through kind of the big stages of the book. If you want to try to jot these down there in your notes, we've again provided the, the title of the sermon and the points for you to follow along. But let me just run through the big sections of the book itself. In Acts 1 and 2, we really find there the preparation of Jesus for of His people to be his witnesses. He prepares them there in those first couple of chapters. Like in, in Acts 1.8, we see that he promises what, the, what their mission is and promises that it will be accomplished. And, and then in Acts 2, we see the Holy, the Holy Spirit ascend on the day of Pentecost. Then we get really chapters 3 through 5, where Jesus' people witness in the city of Jerusalem in particular. You'll remember there in Acts 2, 14 through 42, that there are thousands who are saved and they, they devote themselves in this infant salvation, in this infant church that's being born. They, they, they devote themselves to, to prayer 
and to breaking bread together, and they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. You see there, Peter preaches, and the church is, is marked out by prayer and, and caring for one another. Then we really get Acts 6 through 12. Acts chapter 6 through 12, Jesus' people began to kind of spread out from Jerusalem, the city, to Judea and Samaria, as he's told them they will do. In Acts 6, we see that these, these seven men are chosen to kind of act as these first deacons in the church, and they serve the needs so the apostles can continue to preach and to pray. And then we find two of those deacons doing amazing things. First, we find Stephen who becomes the first martyr of the church when he's killed for his faith. And, and we find Philip, who's going about and moving beyond Judea and into Samaria, and, and even shares the gospel with a man from Ethiopia. And there in Acts 9, we find this man, Saul, who was raised up as a Pharisee, is converted by Jesus himself, who steps in and told that he will be the one who will go on to preach to the Gentiles and that ball really begins to get rolling in Acts chapter 10 as Peter receives a vision where he goes and shares the gospel with an Italian man named Cornelius. And then really we get the rest of the book. Acts 13 through 28 is all about the fulfilling of this mission of going to the ends of the earth. And primarily we see this through Saul who takes up the name Paul as he goes into these Gentile contexts so that he may relate to them. And he moves, he goes on these journeys and he's moving further and further out, going to city after city after city, many of them not knowing a single person until he gets there. And he's preaching the same gospel over and over, first to the Jews in the synagogues, wrestling through the scriptures with them, and then to the Gentiles, speaking the word of truth to them. Now as we've looked at this book back in that first sermon, I made five, let me check it, yes, five promises to you that we would look at in the book of Acts. Five promises of what you would come to see and understand. I'm going to go back through those and I want you to ask yourself, as many as you have been here for, some of you started coming to the church like halfway through this series. So as we've been going through the series, here are the five things that we've seen in the book of Acts and ask yourself, have you seen these? Number one, I made the promise that you'll understand the Old Testament better. The Old Testament, as, as, as we see primarily Paul, but, but also Peter at times, wrestling with the Old Testament Scriptures and applying them to the New Testament church, we begin to understand what God was doing in the Old Testament. We're going to see that really fulfilled finally today at the end of our passage. Number two, I promise that you'll understand the work and the power of the Holy Spirit more. This has been the one that struck me the most. It's just how powerful the Spirit is to move the mission along. That Jesus, Holy Spirit, comes and He is moving the mission along and He is glorifying Christ from the beginning of the book until the very end. We've seen how the Spirit is moving to advance the kingdom of God. And we've seen in that Spirit moving, primarily it's done more and more through the Word itself. I don't know if you've taken note of this, but, but, but the, the miracles and the miraculous signs and wonders, they, they begin to taper off by the end of the book of Acts, and, and it becomes more and more about the preaching and the declaring of the Word. Number three, I promise that you'll understand the sovereignty and the providence of God. And friends, have we not seen that over the last few weeks in looking at Paul's journey in chains and how he has stood before governors and kings and rulers, and every time none of them has said, yet, off with his head. 
But each step of the way, the Lord Jesus has preserved him to get to Rome. Number four, I promise that you'll grow to love the apostles, all the more specifically Peter and Paul, and better understand how to read their letters. Friends, I wonder if, if any of you in your, your personal reading have, have went back to, to Paul's letters in the New Testament, realizing that many of these letters that he's written to these churches, we've seen him go to those churches in Acts, and we've seen him now writing letters to them as, as more than likely you can pretty much assume he's, he's in chains or under house arrest as he's writing to those churches. And number five, the biggest one of all that that we've seen, and I think that this one has certainly been fulfilled in our looking at Acts, is that you'll understand how it is Jesus and Jesus alone who builds His church. It is Jesus and Jesus alone who builds His church. We've seen time and time again in looking at this book that it is Jesus who has pushed this mission along through speaking, through visions, through, through giving certain situations We've seen them call on Him. We've seen what, what, what Ananias says to Paul when he shows up in Acts 9. What does he say? He says, go, for He is chosen. This is Jesus speaking to Ananias concerning Paul. Go, for He is a chosen instrument of Mine to carry My name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show Him how much He must suffer for the sake of My name. And has Jesus not been true to His Word? So what has been the main message of this book then? As we've seen those five things flower. And it's this. To display the ongoing work of Jesus Christ through His witnesses by the power of His Spirit. To show that Jesus is the one who builds His church. That Jesus is the one who builds His kingdom. We don't do it. We just get to be bricks and mortar as Jesus is the one who is doing this mission. He is the one who has ascended from heaven, is in heaven itself, and He is directing the very mission of God. And friends, we've come to this realization primarily so we can see that Jesus is still doing it today. That He is still at work among us. Have you noticed how throughout this book there's this ongoing mention of the name of Jesus? that they call Him over and over the Lord, that He is the Master and He has the authority. So in some ways, we're going to see all of these things then drawn out one more time in this final chapter of this amazing story. It's a story that doesn't actually end in a way that ties everything up, as we're going to come to see. And so you see there in your bulletin, we do have four points that we're going to walk through today. A journey continued, a voyage concluded, a mission fulfilled, and a task unfinished. And I'll be reading each of those portions as we get to those points. But as we do, my prayer for us this morning really is, is Paul's prayer for the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1, 5 through 9. If I could just read that to you, because it's my prayer for us as we look at Acts one more time, is that in every way you were enriched in Him and all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called 
into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's my prayer, is that 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 would be true of us as we look at the book of Acts one more time. So let's begin by thinking about a journey continued. We're going to go back to where we ended last week in Acts 28, 1 through 10. Let me read the word of the Lord to us as we jump into a journey continued, point one. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened to his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, though he has escaped from the sea. Justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Now, just to recap, we're brought here to this island of Malta by shipwreck. Paul and these other prisoners, along with Julius, the centurion, and and the captain, and and the sailors, they're, they're all brought safely to shore. Everybody lives, but they make it to this foreign island known as Malta. And they didn't know what island they had landed on originally, but they're here, and they are greeted and cared for by an indigenous people. There in the Greek, it's literally the word barbaroi, which is the word we get our word barbarian from. But it doesn't mean barbarian in the sense that they were these savages who wanted to to kill them. When we think of the word barbarian, we tend to think violence. But that's not what the word means here. It just means that they're the native peoples. And that's the way it's translated in the ESV. It's important because we see here now that the gospel has moved beyond the polite society of the Greeks. And after surviving a shipwreck, we see that Paul turns around just to be bit by a snake. Right? We see that Paul's not just having a bad day, but the native peoples believe that it is judgment itself. And and many of your translations, as in the ESV, you'll see that that word justice there, that justice has not allowed him to live, is capitalized. It represents this this foreign god, this foreign deity that they had in their mind, a pagan god named Justice, who would come and execute judgment on criminals. They believed that that this god, Justice, had suddenly struck this man, Paul. We see that that in some degree, I brought this out a little bit last week, that that their, their, their assessment of Paul is somewhat true. That this is Paul's assessment of himself, that that prior to his salvation, he himself was a murderer of Christians. And yet, the snake does not kill Paul. And yet, Paul's judgment, the justice that Paul had deserved, had already been taken by Jesus Christ himself. 
And so we get this, this biblical theological theme of sort, this idea we see here that, that if, if you're looking forward to the end of our Bibles, to the book of Revelation, we get a little mini picture of it here that this serpent is tossed back into the fire and he burns, showing a sinner justified. And Paul does good to all. We th- Sean thought about this last week in our Sunday evening devotion, looking at Galatians 6.10. Do good to all, but especially those of the household of faith. And, and he specifically drew out how we are to do good to especially the household of faith. But we see Paul here doing the first half of that, doing good to all. That he comes and he heals the chief's father and he heals all the people on the island. This gospel proclamation, as we see in our own life, should be accompanied by gospel-shaped love and care. And healing the sick in Acts, as we've seen throughout the book, is not the main thing. But it's just a little picture of this kingdom of God that is breaking in, looking forward to that day when the kingdom will fully break in and all sickness and all disease and all calamity and all hurts will finally and fully be healed. And so the kingdom breaks in and Paul has another opportunity to preach the gospel. But there's one more truth here that I want to draw out before we move on. That's just kind of some summary of what we thought about last week a little bit. But we see here... As we move to the end of this book, how Paul's ministry so clearly mirrors that of Jesus Christ. Luke's gospel, his first volume, more than Matthew, Mark, and John, Luke highlights the healing ministry of Jesus. Luke highlights Jesus' exorcisms and his feeding those who are in need and and His loving and caring for those who are downtrodden more than any of the other Gospels. And they're always in Luke's Gospel, when Jesus does these things, they're intertwined with His teaching. In in Luke, Jesus' ministry, the signs and the wonders, they, they only confirmed who He truly was. And so likewise for Paul, this preservation by God and this ministering to these people on this island are signs that the mission itself is going on, that it is continuing. I mean, think about the journey that Paul has been on to get to this place and just to get bit by a snake and that be it. No, God will not even let the viper kill Paul, but keeps him going. In Jesus' inaugural sermon back at the beginning of Luke, and I think it's important for us to keep these two books together because there's so many themes and overlap between them. Back at the beginning of Luke, the first sermon that Jesus preaches there in Luke 4, He quotes from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and we see Paul taking this very truth up himself at the end here. And this is, this is that quote from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Jesus took this up Himself and displayed this, and now we see Paul continuing to follow in the footsteps of his Savior. And friends, the same should be true of us. What does this mean for us? This means that the ministry of God's kingdom, this means that if if you're a Christian and you have one foot in this world still, but, but you have one foot firmly planted in the very kingdom of God, it is where your hope lies. While we wait for Jesus to return, what this means for us is that the ministry of God's kingdom here and now is not yet over 
And we must press ourselves onward on the mission. You realize for Paul, rest would have been warranted after a shipwreck and after that journey that took him through the winter and docking in various ports and jumping from ship to ship and all the mess. Rest would have been warranted. He could have taken a chill pill. But Paul presses on ministering. And friends, I bring that up because I wonder if you, standing in the line of Paul, following in the steps of your Savior, Christian, if you have taken note of those open doors for ministry and gospel proclaiming in your own life, or are you bent on spending it on yourself? But they don't stay on Malta, do they? The journey must continue. Let's look at point two, a voyage concluded. Let me read for us 11 through 16 of Acts 28. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Patioli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. We see now that the journey is going to go on for three more months, but, but Luke speeds it up really quick here. In the, in, the, in the span of five verses, he covers three months. He'd slowed it down so much before, and now he's like, okay, we're just going to get from Malta, and we're going to get to Rome. Let's get there. It's almost as if Luke can tell, hey, can, that, as we're reading, hey, can you just hurry things up? Let, let, let's figure out what's going on here, right? And so we see that they sail on the ship with these twin gods, uh, who are these twin gods? What, what is this? It, it's Greek mythology, these twin gods. They're Castor and Pollux. Okay, that's their names. You don't need to remember that. That's not included here. They're just the twin gods who are mentioned here. But what are they? Well, they were these Greek gods who were meant to protect ships and, and give good winds and, and help shipwrecked sailors. And why does Luke bring this up? Why does he make this interesting note? Because he wants us to see that these guys don't really matter. <laughs> That, that these are not real gods, that these are pagan, false gods. That, they, that Paul did not even need them. That the people thought that they had all these help from these, these untrue deities. But it is in fact God in His sovereignty and His providence who has bought, brought Paul thus far and he will see him safely to Rome. And so God's sovereignty continues to be on display Jesus protected Paul from a snake bite. Jesus gave care through people's kindness. And now we find with relative ease how Jesus gets Paul exactly where he wants him to be. Verse 14, the end of it. Did you catch the phrase? It's almost as if Luke puts it there in a passing sense, but don't miss the weight of what he's just said. The end of 14, look back there. And so we came to Rome. This is the conclusion. This is it. This is exactly what Jesus told Paul back in Acts 23, 11, that he would do, that he would go to Rome. 
This is the fulfillment of what Jesus tells Ananias back in Acts 9, that he will be my witness. This is the fulfillment of what Jesus tells his chosen 11 back in Acts 1, that they will go to the ends of the earth. Here it is. We have made it. And yet it's such a small thing, isn't it? We get to Rome. It's this monumental statement. This is the ends of the earth. Because you understand that it is Rome who conquers the day. It is Rome whose empire is ruling in this time. And so if you make it to Rome, you can make it to the rest of the known world. Rome is the epicenter of everything in the world in these days. And so to go from here is fairly easy. In a phrase, if we reach Rome, we reach the world. But we find there that Paul thanks God and takes courage, not because they are in Rome, but because of the Christians that are there. Do you realize this is what he had longed for? Earlier, when, when he was in prison, he, he wrote a letter to these Christians. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called Romans. I, I see we have a pastor who's preaching through that book. So it's, and we jump back into it in the new year. Consider this. He, he takes courage and thanks God that these Christians come to him in, in Rome. Why? Well, let me read to you Romans 1. Pick up verse 8. He says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at least succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. Prevented by who? By God Himself in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. We see finally now as we get to Acts 28 that Jesus gives Paul the desires of his heart. And so these brothers come to him. They come from Forum of Appius, and evidently some of them even left the, the trinity of pubs. They left three taverns. <laughs> I don't know what that looks like. Hey, Paul's here. Let's leave the bar. They show up. And on seeing them, on seeing them, Paul doesn't know who they are. He doesn't, he doesn't have Facebook. He's not like, oh, let me like the church at Rome, and they see all the members there. No. But he sees them and they're coming to him and he knows in his spirit and he takes courage. He is encouraged, as he said, he longed to be and he thanks God. Friends, I wonder if you are encouraged and take courage of one another like Paul does here. Or to put it to you more bluntly, is the gospel just something we believe or is it something that, that moves us towards 
taking note of one another and loving one another and serving and caring for one another and being built up for one another. This is why during our Sunday evening prayer services, when we do prayers of thanksgiving, I always make it a point, and some of you are like, why is he such a, a killjoy? I make it a point to say, hey, don't spend your prayers of thanksgiving thanking God for all the stuff he's just doing in your life. Let's use these corporate prayers of thanksgiving to take note and thank God for what we see him doing in one another's life. And the thing that I'm, I'm inferring there, that though I will put it to you straight right now, is if you can't think of anything, then maybe you need to press into the life of your fellow believers a little bit more. Do we thank God? Are we encouraged by knowing how He is at work in other people's lives? And do you worship Him? Knowing that God is at work in more than just our little own hearts compels us to serve in uncomfortable ways, to check on those who are absent. When you leave here on Sunday afternoons, as late as it may be and as hungry as you may be, do you think, well, so-and-so wasn't here today. Maybe I should text them or call them and check in on them and make sure they're okay. When you haven't heard from a friend for a few days, you think, maybe, maybe I should check in and and see if they're encouraged and what they're reading in the Bible. And, and I read this verse in the Bible and, and it struck my heart, but, but not just my heart. It made me think about how this friend confessed this sin. And, and maybe I'll just text them this Bible verse or give them a call. And friends, with the voyage now complete, what is Jesus' mission for Paul? We get to the largest section now in point three, a mission fulfilled. Let me read for us from verse 17 all the way through 29. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. I'm going to read that verse again. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Friends, we should not be surprised when Christianity is spoken against. Sorry, that was my own little insert. That's not in there. Verse 23. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear but never understand, 
and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely, I'm sorry, with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Here in this section, we find Paul's house arrest in, in his last meetings that we have recorded for us. He's placed under house arrest. He's brought here and he's allowed to live as a normal person, except he has a soldier who's guarding his house and he cannot leave. And what have we found primarily Paul do when he shows up to a new city? What's the first thing he does? He normally goes to the synagogue, right? And he expounds the scriptures to the Jews. But here he can't do that. And so what does he do? He brings the synagogue to himself. He says, all you Jews, all the Jewish leaders, and anybody wants to come, come on over to my house. And we're going to get into it. It's during this time under Paul's house arrest, which is some two years we're going to find in the next verse, that that Paul also writes several letters They're known as the imprisonment letters, specifically the letters to the church in Ephesus, the church in Philippi, and the church at Colossae. And then he writes also one personal letter to Philemon. So Paul is busy in this time. And so we find here specifically this one final meeting that he has with the Jews. These meetings have been prevalent throughout because of Paul's heart for his own people. He brings this up in Romans 9. When he says that, oh, that I would be accursed, that my kinsmen would hear, and that they would believe. So here he recounts his own experience in Jerusalem. He's honest with them. He doesn't shy away from what's happened. He reveals that Roman authorities found nothing wrong with him, but that he chose to stay in chains so that he may stand before Caesar. He's willingly decided to face Caesar and This is in part because it's what Christ has told him he is to do. Now, why does he ask to see them? Well, he says here that in verse 19, I had no charge to bring against my nation. He's not not had them come before him so that he can can yell at them or get mad at them or accuse all the other people or, or, or gossip or slander his own people. The reason that he's wearing the chain, I read it twice. I hope you got it. Verse 20, For this reason, therefore, what is the reason? I have asked to see you and speak with you. Why? Since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. What is the hope of Israel? Well, friends, we see this throughout our Old Testament. That Jesus would save His people through a Messiah through an anointed one, through one who would come and redeem them. The reason that he's wearing this chain is so that he may declare to them the hope. And so they want to know more. We see there in verses 23 through 29, Paul tells them more. Paul doesn't get up and preach a one-off, does he? He doesn't get up and just say, hey, let me give you a sweet little devotional and here are ten steps to make your life better. No, it says that 
Paul goes morning to evening, expounding, explaining, exposing, drawing out, and applying the passages of the Old Testament, the scriptures of the law of Moses and the prophets. This This is shorthand for the entire Old Testament. You noticed earlier I brought up how Paul's ministry mirrors Jesus. We had read for us in Luke 24 earlier how Jesus opened His disciples' minds to understand and explain the law of Moses and the prophets to them so that they may understand the Scriptures. And here at the very end of Luke's second volume, He's showing us that Paul is doing the exact same thing. Oh, that God would give preachers would labor morning and evening to expound the Scriptures. One of the reasons I believe that we lack so much spirituality in our nation, that we lack such holiness and obedience among Christians today, is because we have preachers and pastors who do not labor in the Word of God as Paul does. Whatever meager attempts myself or David or Sean give to serving as your pastors, may it always be said of us, my prayer for us is that we would labor in the Word of God to deliver it to you. Because this is the Gospel. Men, women, and children hear that this is the Gospel that He lays out for them. He says here, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus. What about Jesus? That Jesus is the true and greater prophet. That He is the true and greater priest. And that He is the true and greater King. That in His life He came and He proclaimed perfectly the Word of God and displayed perfectly who God is. That in His death He offered the perfect sacrifice. That in His resurrection He showed that He is the King of the universe and none of His enemies will vanquish Him, but He will conquer them all, making them His footstool. This is the Gospel that Paul labored to convince them of. And it is the same Gospel that I labor, that we labor to convince you of. Paul presents this gospel using all of Scripture, as I've said. Maybe you went to passages like Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. Maybe he used Exodus 12.13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the house where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Maybe you use Zechariah 9.9. This is a, a passage for Advent we often go to. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is He, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Friends, why should you read your Bible? Because the entire Bible drips with the good news of Jesus Christ. It is exposed everywhere. God's mission is not unknown to us, but it is here in His Word. But they don't listen. 
And so Paul, in a final fulfillment of Isaiah 6, applies it to these Jews who refuse. Those Jews back in Isaiah's time, they they chose not to listen. They, They hardened their hearts. They had hardened their hearts generation after generation after generation. And Isaiah called them back, but God told him, you will not have a fruitful ministry. But it was only a glimmer of what Paul speaks of here. That the true and final fulfillment of all that God had been doing is Jesus Christ. And the Jews' denial of Jesus is their denial of God Himself. But what of the end? Let's look at point four, a task unfinished. The last two verses. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him and proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That's it. And that's it. Paul's Acts ending here tells us a lot. It says here that for two whole years, Paul continues to do just what he has done with these Jews. Preach to anyone who will listen, welcoming all who came to him. He lives under house arrest, but in this time he is proclaiming one central truth. Not that I deserve to be a free man because I've done nothing wrong, but proclaiming the kingdom of God. And friends, do you understand this is just what Jesus himself began with? His first sermon, I mentioned a minute ago in Luke 4, 43, he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And so we find Paul following his Savior in his final verses. And it's done with boldness and without hindrance. Now what's amazing to me, and should be amazing to you who live a pretty comfortable life, is that Luke would say that Paul, who's under house arrest, who can't jog on over to Walmart Marketplace or to the Kroger whenever he would like and and pick up some, some kale... That he would say that Paul, who is living in bondage, in chains, he says, is preaching the gospel without hindrance, with all boldness. And how many of us say, oh, I, I can't share the gospel with my coworker. I can't share the gospel with my neighbor. There's just so many hindrances. There's just so many obstacles that I've got to overcome. There's stuff that they're dealing with. There's stuff that I'm dealing with. And my own testimony, they're not going to listen. No! Look at Paul. If Paul were before us today, he would laugh in our faces at the lack of evangelism. And so we see here that Paul goes without hindrance and he encourages us to do the same. Now, just to be clear here, we don't know what happens to Paul after this. We do know that eventually he's arrested again in Rome. And under Nero, both he and Peter are killed. Historically, we're told that, that Peter, who kind of the first half of Acts was taken up with Peter, historically, we're told that Peter was, was crucified upside down because he did not consider himself worthy to die in the same manner as his Savior. 
And so he asked to be crucified upside down. And historically we're told that, that, that Paul, his death is a death of, of beheading. Both of them at the hands of really the king of the known world. Of the Roman Empire. This man Nero. And yet, how fitting is it that these two giants in the book of Acts would both die at the hands of an earthly emperor. Trusting in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That even if it means our heads are rolling, we will not bow to another. And we will not stop the mission for which God has given us. Now, why does Luke end this way? Why does Luke end the book of Acts, his second volume, this way? I don't know about you, but I'm left wanting a little bit more. As I hear this, I'm like, okay, let's keep going. Like, did, did we lose some pages? Did somebody forget to write something down? Where's the rest of the book? No, but he ends here, I think, on purpose. He ends leaving it open-ended because he wants us to understand that this task that the apostles were called to is a task unfinished. That we may have made it to the ends of the earth, but not all whom God will call to himself have been reached. As we've been reading and preaching through Acts, I've been picking my way through a book by the Puritan Thomas Watson. It's drawn out of this verse. The book is drawn out of this verse from Matthew eleven twelve, 12. And this is the verse... From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. And I've been wrestling with that verse and wrestling with what Watson, the Puritan, has to say about this verse. And as we've been going through the book of Acts, it's, it's really began to, to, well, maybe it's come out in some of my sermons. Maybe some of you have noticed that the kingdom of God has suffered violence, that there is a world that is warring against Christ and warring against His kingdom. It is a fulfillment of Psalm 2. Sean will get us there shortly. But, but, the, but the kingdom of God is suffering violence. And this is what Watson say. He, he says. This is what Watson says. He says, Many people think it is enough to bring their bodies to the assembly, but never to look at their hearts. They satisfy themselves that they have been at church though they have not been with God there. And his argument from the book is that the kingdom of God is only reached by those who take hold of it. That yes, the kingdom of God is suffering violence, but the kingdom of God is had by those who are warring. This is, this is the extended title of his book. Heaven Taken by Storm, showing the holy violence a Christian is to put forth in the pursuit after glory. And this is exactly what we find Paul doing here at the end of the book. And it's what we found God's people doing throughout the book of Acts. And it's what we should be finding God's people doing to this day. That heaven should be taken by storm. That we should be pursuing God's glory with a holy violence. Not with an earthly violence. I'm not saying we should take up arms. But I'm saying we should take up our Bibles. And we should get our feet on the streets. And we should be about the mission spending our time, our energy, and our money to seeing the gospel go to the nations. This is truly a task unfinished for us, so why are we not taking heaven by storm? This is how Charles Spurgeon puts it. 
Here is the day for the man. Where is the man for the day? I've been really impacted this past week as I read one of Spurgeon's sermons entitled Gospel Missions. And, and in this sermon, this is how I want to close today, he closes with four reasons why the book of Acts is not playing itself out in the life of Christians today. Now you can make some theological arguments about the spirit and the gifts and, and the church age and the age. This is what Spurgeon has to say, and, and I think he's spot on. He says, number one, the reason we don't see Acts laying out today is because we lack of apostolic people. Now, when he uses the word apostolic, I'm going to use it every time here. We're not talking about big A apostolic as in like their current denominations that say we have an apostle and they speak the words of God and they speak new... That's not what he means. He means witnesses. We lack witnessing people. A people who have abundant faith and trust in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is how Spurgeon says it. He says... Of Paul, he had no doubt about the power of the gospel. But nowadays, my brethren, we have not faith in the gospel we preach. How many there are who preach the gospel which they are afraid will not save souls. And therefore they add little bits of their own to it in order, as they think, to win men to Christ. I hold that a man who does not believe his gospel to be able to save men's soul does not believe it at all. If God's truth will not save men's souls, man's lies cannot. If God's truth will not turn men to repentance, I am sure there is nothing in this world that can. When we believe the gospel to be powerful, then we shall see its power. One of the reasons we don't see this continuing mission today is because we fail to believe the power of the gospel. Number two, that we lack apostolic style. Spurgeon argued that a great mistake has been made in not affirming the divinity of our mission. What he's saying there is we have not affirmed that this is a mission from Jesus Christ Himself. And standing fast on that truth, that it doesn't need to be proven, it just needs to be proclaimed. Anyway, can I say that again? Because some of us get bogged down in the arguments in the Christian world and the world at large today, but the gospel of Jesus Christ does not have to be proven to be believed. It has to be proclaimed to be believed. How will they know if they do not hear? Number three, Spurgeon says that we lack apostolic churches. Oh, had you seen an apostolic church, what a different thing it would appear to one of our churches, he says. As different, I had almost said, as light from darkness as different as the shadow bed of a brook that is dried up by summer, is from the mighty, mighty rolling river, ever full, ever deep and clear, and ever rushing into the sea. Lord, give us a church like that. That is a rolling, thundering, gospel-enriched church. And finally, he says that the reason we don't see acts playing out in our lives today because of a lack of influence by the Holy Spirit. I am sure that the Holy Spirit is able to make the Word successful. And the reason why we do not prosper is that we have not the Holy Spirit attending us with might and energy as they had then. To bring it all around, I have a lot more notes here. I was going to go through every verse of how sweet and awful is the place, but we've run out of time. And so maybe I'll let David say a few things before we sing that at the end, but... 
Friends, as I said back at the beginning and thinking about the promises that we held out at the beginning of this book, the thing that struck me the most is the power of the Holy Spirit to still work in and among us. And I know some of us have different views on how the Spirit works today, but we can all agree on this, that there is a Holy Spirit. He is fully God and He is at work today. And the reason that some of us have felt so languishing in our lives, have found ourselves running to every other thing in the world for hope and pleasure and purpose and satisfaction. The reason that, that churches struggle to complete the mission of going to the nations is because we've not called on the Spirit of God to be poured out among us freshly. That apart from a work of the Spirit, we will not see a revival. We will not see renewal in our nation. It doesn't matter how many churches put nice vinyl signs on their front lawn and say, hey, we're having a revival this week, and all the people show up. If the Spirit's not there, it's not going to make a difference. And so, friends, my prayer for us as we move into Ruth over the next four weeks, as we jump back into Hebrews in the next year, looking forward to getting into the Minor Prophets next summer. David continues to preach through Romans and Sean through the Psalms. My prayer is that the Spirit of God would come and work among us in new and exciting ways. And that the Spirit would reveal Christ to us and He would become all the more precious. Because the more precious Christ becomes to us, the more pressing the mission to reach the ends of the earth will be. So may we see that Jesus' mission is still a task unfinished. That we, standing on the shoulders of men and women like those in the book of Acts, that we as inheritors of the gospel that they proclaimed, that we too should give ourselves to proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance from now until our great King returns and brings us home to Him. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let me pray. Father, we are inadequate to complete such a glorious and beautiful mission. And God, the reason why is because this is not our mission. This is your mission. Jesus, we cry and we ask that you would work among us that you would equip us and empower us through your Spirit to be about the work that you have called us to be near and far. And God, I do pray over this people in this room right now, if there are any who have heard this gospel and do not know you, Lord, God, I pray and I plead that your Spirit would come and open their hearts, that they would not be like those described in Isaiah 6 who have ears to hear and they do not hear and eyes to see, but they do not see. God, would you, would you work among us, Spirit, that we would hear and we would see the glories of Christ and all that He's called us to. Would you do this for your own glory, God? In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.